1983, director Richard Marquand and star Harrison Ford gave the world an electrifying conclusion to one of cinema's greatest trilogies of all time. In 2020, we say both hello and goodbye to a Brown Foreman favorite. The film is Star Wars Episode VI, Return of the Jedi. The whiskey is early times, bottled in bond. And we'll review them both. This is... The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And today we're looking at the 1983 classic, Return of the Jedi. So, you have accepted the truth. I've accepted the truth that you were once Anakin Skywalker, my father. That name no longer has any meaning for me. It is the name of your true self you've only forgotten. I know there is good in you. The Emperor hasn't driven it from you fully. Or, you know, if you're, if you're following how you're supposed to say it, Star Wars, Episode 6, Subtitle B, Revision 2, Return of the <laughs> Jedi, Version 3.0, right? Luke, Luke Starkiller yeah. coming to kill, kill, kill Darth Vader. Right, exactly. <laughs> Brad, I mean, anyone who's a Star Wars fan knows this, but my, one of my favorite things about this movie is that it was initially called Revenge of the Jedi, all the way up almost until it's release. Like so there's there are people out there that spend thousands of dollars trying to get an authentic Revenge of the Jedi poster because they were already being made for this movie. And if I'm being honest, Brad, I think Revenge of the Jedi would have been a better title for this movie. Yeah, but Bob, you don't understand the ethos of the Jedi Order. Boo! Like, they are not about revenge. They are about peace they are about the reduction and, and dissolution of emotion. Revenge is a very high level emotion, Bob. I, I, I guess. That's not what they're all about. I guess. <laughs> Brad, so we've done both of the prior films in this trilogy on this podcast. You are a huge Star Wars fan. I am much, much cooler on Star Wars than you are. And I actually feel like I can more comfortably be myself now on this podcast because if I'm being honest... I really don't think I like A New Hope that much. I have given it many chances, and it just it doesn't do it for me, Brad. I don't think George Lucas did a great job with that movie. I think Empire... Well, listen, let me finish. I think Empire is fantastic. I gave that one, I think, a 9 out of 10. Return of the Jedi is one that I am like split right down the middle on, because I think this movie has both the good and the bad of both prior films. I think this might be the worst directed movie out of all three, I think it also probably has the lowest low points of any of the three films, but it also has the highest high points of any of the three films. I think the things that I love about this movie, I love even more than any part of Empire. Well, first off, Bob, I'm pretty sure you are from the lowest cesspool of human existence. A wretched, a wretched like hive of scum and villainy? Pretty much. I like... For how much you love cinema, I just don't understand how you don't appreciate and love, and maybe not even love, but at least like Star Wars. I just, that just so, blows my mind. So let me let me just give the briefest defense, because I don't want this to devolve into one of those episodes again, Brad, but like, 
I think partially because I didn't really come to Star Wars until I was an adult or in my late teens, at least. I never had the attachment to them that most people have watching them when they're kids. And I just think for the most part, like, you know, at its best, it's a really competently made space opera. It has this tragic element to it, which is what I love about Return of the Jedi. I think at its worst, it's really sloppily put together. I think if if we're being really honest with ourselves, most of the acting across all three films is average at best. And so like when I go into the Disney Star Wars movies, I recognize everything that everybody hates about those movies. But I think there's also things where I think the acting in the Disney Star Wars movies blows the acting in the original trilogy out of the water. And I feel like I I almost feel like I'm not allowed to make points like this because it's considered so sacrilegious. But there are elements of the original trilogy that really do come across not just dated, but actually amateurish. And I think that, like, that's where I'm at with it. It's it's fun. It's fine. I enjoy watching them. But I'm never going to have that, like, deep connection to them that some people do. Bob, while you were spewing your nonsense, I was ready to just throw down the entire glass of whiskey that I have for our whiskey segment. And I was, I'm just ready to roll, bro. Like, I, the acting in the Disney Star Wars is better than the original. Tri- bro. I don't think that you could ever convince me that, like, Adam Driver is not a better actor than Mark Hamill. Bro, okay. Listen, you know what I'm saying? I like, lo- I think I the- love me some Adam Driver. Go watch uh, Silence. Is that yeah, Scorsese's? Yeah. Dude, go see him in Silence and, uh, in, Marriage uh, story, cl- marriage story, and Klansman. Uh, he he's great. He's phenomenal. I think he's really good in the new Star Wars. I think he's probably the only good actor in the new Star Wars. I well, we we could talk about Disney Star Wars another day. I'll, <laughs> I'll just, just say that the, the thing I love about this episode already, Brad, is that we're so far off track and we're already like verging on fighting with each other. So let me ask you this, Brad. I feel like anytime we talk about Star Wars, it's like. It's pretty close to the end of this podcast. Yeah, and i that's what I want to ask about. And as soon as we answer this question, we can move on and do our regularly scheduled episode. But I guess my question is, like, do you feel like you are capable of a calm and rational discussion about Star Wars? Or is it just too personal for you? Do I think I'm capable of having a calm, rational discussion on this topic? Bob, I don't know if I am. I like I love Star Wars to the core of my being. And I will say, you know, we'll get into this. Return of the Jedi is not a perfect movie. I I came into Return thinking like, man, I haven't seen Return in a while and I'm really excited for it. And I think it might be my second favorite behind Empire Strikes Back. I just was coming into it ready to be blown away. Mm-hmm. And there's some issues. Mm-hmm. There's a few issues here or there. So I'm not going to act like this is a perfect movie. However, if you're going to sit here and give this movie less than like an eight out of 10, I might drive up to Akron and just beat your face in in front of your child. <laughs> so the short answer is no, you're not capable of having a, a calm, <laughs> rational. So that, that's where I'm at with this, Brad, is like, you know, I, I want to be able to give my honest opinion on why I think there are flaws in this movie and where I think it should fall kind of objectively. I, I just think that I'm going to anger you no matter what I say. Even if I did give this an 8 out of 10, I feel like that would still probably be too low for you. So we're going into this movie t- 
talking about something that is really personal to you and really near and dear to your heart. And I want to respect that. And so I, I guess I'm going to have to kind of walk on eggshells today, Brad, because like I said, this has the highest high points in the whole trilogy for me. It also has the lowest low points. I rewatched this movie about a year ago with my wife who had never seen the original trilogy. And I walked out of it thinking to myself, this might be my favorite movie of the trilogy. Not the best one, but my favorite one. And so when I rewatched it yesterday, I was pumped and I came out of it kind of in the same place you did, Brad, with with kind of a, a very glaring awareness of this movie's flaws. So let's get into talking about it, Brad. Obviously, this was not your first time seeing the film. Can you give us a, a very brief, abbreviated Brad explains about the plot of the movie Return of the Jedi? Yeah, Bob, I would love to explain Return of the Jedi. It is a movie about how Luke and his companions rescue Han from the clutches of an evil crime lord named Jabba the Hutt. They get some wisdom from Yoda. They look for a way to destroy this second Death Star. And in the end, Luke is able to confront his past with his father and Darth Vader and find the good in him. The rebels are able to destroy the Death Star and Luke and Leia find out that they're brother and sister and Han and Leia fall in love and just everything beautiful happens in this movie, Bob. I cannot wait to get into talking about this. And I I guess here's how I want to proceed. You let me know if you're OK with this. I took notes on this movie, just things that popped into my head as I was watching it. So it goes in the order of the movie. I say, let's just go through this movie sequentially and, and you respond to, to what I say and I respond to what you have to say about it. Does that sound good? I Let's do it. Awesome. Brad, the thing that I love about this movie is that Darth Vader enters this movie immediately. Obviously, Darth Vader, I don't think that I'm being hyperbolic when I say that Darth Vader is far and away the most interesting of the main characters. He's such a good villain that you always want to get to know more about him. And when the Emperor is really introduced in Empire Strikes Back and you find out that Vader's not really the big bad, that he's actually like this kind of groveling servant at the feet of the Emperor, you really, your, your ears are kind of perked up and you you want to know more about Vader's relationship with the Emperor. I love that they just kind of jump you right in. And Brad, I guess let's just give general thoughts on the, the story, the arc of Vader in this movie. I mean, there's a reason he is still known as one of the greatest villains of all time, Bob. Mm -hmm. His story is so powerful, is so interesting. And I think the beautiful thing about watching the original trilogy is that at that point, you didn't know all of the backstory. You know, you, you kind of get it slowly revealed throughout the three movies. And as it gets revealed, he goes from being this menacing figure who can literally just pick a man up by the throat and crush his windpipe till he dies to a figure who is sympathetic and who mm -hmm. you actually care for. And I think that this, this watch through of the movie, which I don't even know how many times I've seen this movie, Bob, but like this specific viewing, I was just so much more drawn in by Darth Vader than almost any other time I've watched this film. Obi-Wan once thought as you do. You don't know the power of the dark side. I must obey my master. I will not turn, and you'll be forced to kill me. If that is your destiny... Suit your feelings, father. You can't do this. I feel the conflict within you. Let go of your hate. It is too late 
for me, son. I think that the script for this movie really kind of bails out the direction at a lot of points, Brad. And for me, the first time I noticed that there was something off about this movie was almost immediately after the Emperor kind of disembarks uh, to come onto the Star Destroyer or the Death Star, wherever they are at the beginning of the movie. Like the contrast didn't look quite as as drastic as it did in Empire. It didn't look quite as sharp. The, you know, the great uh, blacks in Invader's helmet and in the Emperor's cloak, they didn't look as crisp. And it, I realized it's not a restoration issue. It's not a like 4K thing. It's the fact that they didn't film it as well. And I think kind of by and large, even though the special effects improved with every subsequent movie, like the, the the special effects of the spaceships and everything look great in this movie. But I think overall, this movie looks cheaper than Empire did. And I have to think that that had a lot to do with the director and the cinematographer from Empire not working on this one. Yeah, in the end... Empire just had such beautiful direction and, like you said, cinematography that I don't think it's ever really been topped in in Star Wars history. Mm -hmm. And you are right. There are certain elements of this movie where the camera just feels a lot less dynamic. It feels a lot less... I don't know. There's less impetus to the first half of this movie. And I think some of it is because Marquand, as a director, just doesn't... I don't know. He doesn't have a sense of movement that I want. Yep. It, it, it's it's a lot slower pace than it should be. And I will say that the the last forty minutes of the movie might be some of the greatest action pacing I've ever seen in my life. Completely agree. So he knows what he's doing with the action sequences, but the rest of the movie, I feel like he struggles with. Well, this is one of those those instances where I would be really interested to be a fly on the wall. During the production of it, because I have a feeling that this is a movie that was saved in the editing room or was, you know, made by the edit because that last 45 minutes of that last battle. And I want we'll get into talking about that later on, Brad. I think the reason it works is because it's paced so well and they intercut the three arcs so well, but it still has very little to do with Marquand and like the way he places the actors in frame, the way he moves the camera. I noticed that a lot in this movie, that there aren't a ton of really well put together moving shots where you get a ton of information from the way the camera follows characters around or repositions itself to establish a new shot. It's kind of just like stationary camera cut to another stationary camera. Almost all the dialogue is just kind of like shot reverse shot. It's a very simplistic setup. And I really thought that it was apparent from the very beginning of the film. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. Although I will say that opening scene with Vader and the emperor is phenomenal. It captivates your attention right away. You're drawn in with the the evil side of the equation in a way that you similarly are in at the start of Empire. You you mm-hmm. know, you start with the probe droids being sent out looking for the re- the new rebel base. There's an element of of repetition there that I think is healthy, but but in the end I I think the movement from Darth Vader and the Emperor and that, like, those are the main people we're concerned with. To Tatooine felt strange to me. Did that feel weird to you? Yeah, and like like you said, Brad, the whole first hour and a half just had these really weird pacing issues. And I really do think that even though the script is pretty thin for that whole part, if it was in the hands of a better director, we would have moved through it quicker. And I honestly think, Brad, you know, Mark Hamill has grown so much as an actor over the last 40 years Uh, And I think he's okay in this movie. But other than him, I would say that all of the main characters probably give 
their worst acting performance in this movie as opposed to the others. And that's not to say that their characters don't have as much to do or any of that. This is the most dynamic, emotional of the three films. But I think you can kind of tell watching some of their performances that they weren't given the correct direction to bring out the performance that was needed. And I noticed it especially with Harrison Ford. Oh, dude, I was literally about to say, unfortunately, the greatest actor in these movies is also struggling the most in this movie. Now, I think it's fair to say, like, he didn't want to come back and do this movie. And he specifically asked that they kill off Han Solo in this movie. And they didn't. So I have a feeling he probably was on set dragging his feet, making things difficult for the director. But at the same time, I feel like it almost feels like they're trying to punish Harrison Ford because they turn Han Solo really into a bumbling idiot for a lot of this film. And so I hate what they do with his character, but I also think that he really looks like he's just on an island out there with no direction for half of his scenes. Like he doesn't know when to say his lines. So there's these really awkward pauses and it just throws the whole pacing of the movie off. And I really do feel like he suffered the most as a result. There's still a few moments with him that's like classic for that I like, like when he first comes out of his carbon carbon freezing and he's in the cell and Chewie is is holding on to him. That lot, those lines that he delivers there are just spot on. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a few moments in this movie, but but you're right, Bob. He just kind of felt like a comic relief when we already have that with C-3PO and R2-D2, like. He he's not the same swashbuckler that you have in the first two movies. I don't know. He's just not the same. It's not the same Han Solo that you have in the first two movies. And I was really frustrated by that this time. I was too, man. And and honestly, everything in Jabba's lair is kind of grating to me. Like Jabba kind of wears out his welcome for me. All the little creatures around him kind of wear out their welcome. And the, the most egregious thing, obviously, are all these updates that Lucas did with the special editions and the Blu-rays and changing the song that was sung in Jabba's Lair. It was originally yeah. called like Nocti something or other. And mm-hmm. I went and watched it on YouTube. It's fine. But having these horrific looking CGI creatures that they've inserted and they've extended that whole sequence, it just, for for a movie that already had pacing issues, it really felt like, legitimately painful to get through that sequence for me. Yeah, the it's long been known that Lucas's special editions, quote unquote, were not very special. <laughs> <laughs> um and so I'm not I'm not going to quibble with you there, Bob. That music sequence is really bad. It just detracts from the dirty lived-in feel, mm-hmm. right? Like that's like that's the most beautiful thing about Star Wars is that it it's a realistic long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like Star Trek, everything's bright and shiny and clean. But in Star Wars, it's like everything feels like it should. And then you have this CGI that just, oh, it's just terrible. (laughs) Now, I will say, Brad, I think that the Rancor is the coolest creature in any of the three films. And I'm super bummed that we didn't get more Rancor. Yeah, dude, he's he's so cool. And that little moment, I don't know. There's moments like that that make me love the Star Wars universe because he shows and and I guess when I say he, I mean Lucas, but like he has this way of creating a universe where, yes, you're focused on Luke and Leia and Han and Vader and all them. But you feel the fact that this is I I use this term already, but I'll say it again. 
it's a lived in world. Mm -hmm. Like when the Rancor dies, his trainer cries like he had an attachment with him. Yeah. And that there's something so intrinsically good about that type of storytelling to know that like there's a whole story behind that one little character that has five seconds of screen time that I just that's what makes me love Star Wars so, so much. Well, Brad, the only other notes that I kind of want to get into before we get to our break revolve around the next moments in the film where Luke flees back to the Dagobah system to meet up with Yoda again. And, you know, if I'm being honest, Brad, I love me some Yoda and I will never say no to Yoda in a movie. But like, I don't really feel like any of this was necessary. Like he obviously reveals a big plot point to Luke that he has a sister and Leia's his sister and Leia is also force sensitive. But like, I don't know if we needed a whole 15 minute detour to the Dagobah system to get that. I I was okay with the Yoda scene this watch through. I, I think it's important to see Yoda passing away, to see him like passing the mantle on to Luke. Mm-hmm. It, it gives Luke a sense of maturity that he didn't have before. But you're right. The, the whole revelation of Leia... It it kind of feels like at the end of Empire when they're like, you know, don't worry, there is another. Uh, Okay, well, now we have to tell them who the other is. Right. I don't know. Maybe you didn't. Maybe he could have given him a cryptic clue as to where to find this other Jedi or something. I I don't know. It it just kind of felt like on the nose a little bit. (laughs) My favorite thing, though, is like the unintentional comedy of Yoda's prolonged death. Like, dude, it's Brad. I laughed out loud because Frank Oz, God bless him. But like the 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 original Yoda voice kind of gets on my nerves a little bit. Like, oh, like the, well, come on. I'll say this. Like, it's because it's gotten clearer and easier to understand over the years. But like Yoda in Empire, I'm like, I have to turn on the subtitles. I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> and when we get to this movie, it kind of just feels like Yoda needs to die for no reason. Yoda's like, well, it's about that time for me. And he lays down. <laughs> yeah. And at first he's yeah. like, I'm just going to go to sleep. And then all of a sudden he's like, look. <laughs> and he kind of sounds like Cartman from South Park a little bit. I was going to say, are, <laughs> are you imitating South Park <laughs> That's now? what he sounds like. And then you think he dies. And then two seconds later, his eyes pop back open and he goes, look, one more time. <laughs> it, it reminded me of that opening scene in... It's a mad, 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 mad world where the guy keeps dying <laughs> yes. before he finally kicks the bucket because it just seems like like repeated fake outs of Yoda dying. And after a while, I was like, just die already. Like, we got to get <laughs> on with this movie. Yeah. I, I mean, in the end, that's been a much parodied moment. If you haven't watched the Family Guy Star Wars, go watch them now. That scene is just phenomenally done in the Family Guy. I, you know, I've never seen that. I think I saw the the New Hope one of Family Guy, but I never saw the one where they got to Return of the Jedi. Oh, Oh, that's great, man. Well, hey, Brad, we're going to keep talking about this movie, but I think it's about time for us to hit pause and drink this early times bottled in bond. What do you say? Let's get to it.
All right, today we are checking out Early Times Bottled in Bond. Now, if you have been in a liquor store in the last 40, 50 years, you have probably seen that ugly little bottle on the bottom shelf that says Early Times on it. It is one of the cheapest things you can buy in a liquor store. That brand, Early Times, is owned by the Brown Foreman Corporation. And as a brand, it goes back, you know, a, a long, long way. Unfortunately, over the years, it's become such a bottom shelf bargain brand that it really kind of fell into disrepair for a while. If you pick up a bottle of the regular early times, you'll see that it actually isn't called bourbon because it doesn't legally meet the requirements to be called bourbon because partially it's aged in used barrels and you can't do that and call it bourbon. So in 2017, Brown Foreman gave the brand a little bit of a boost and they released this bottled in bond version of early times. It is an honest to God bourbon. It's been aged at least four years. It's 100 proof. Uh, and Brad, it has become known as one of the better budget options out there. We'll get into a little bit of the history of it. But Brad, have you ever seen this this beautiful blue bottle on the shelf before? I have seen the bottled in bond before. It is a it's a nice, nifty looking little bottle. There's not I, I didn't realize this till I saw it. There are not many blue like packaged whiskeys out there. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the psychology and the marketing. Certain colors are, are supposed to catch your eye better than others. I know red is supposed to be huge for marketing. So it really does stand out from the pack just for having a blue label on it. It also stands out from the pack because they only sell it in one liter sizes. It's not offered in a fifth. It's only sold in a liter, which is really nice because you already feel like you're getting more bang for your buck. Over the summer, Brad, there was a huge announcement that Brown Foreman decided to sell this brand to the Sazerac Corporation. And so it's in the process of changing hands now. People are really worried about what's going to happen to this whiskey because it's become so beloved among bourbon drinkers. So, you know, before anything might change, before they might start using a different mash bill or something like that, we figured let's get it on the show now. Let's try it. And if we like it, let's recommend it so that people can get out there and buy it before things might change with it. Brad, as we start to nose this, here's the mash bill on it. It's different than other Brown Foreman mash bills. We're talking 79% corn, only 11% rye, and 10% malted barley. So this we, we should have some nice sweet corn character on the nose and on the taste of this. What are you picking up on the nose here, Brad? Bob, as I nose this whiskey, I am just really interested. It's got some citrusy notes. I, I don't know if I could put a put a finger on what type type of citrus we're looking at, whether it's like lime or lemon or orangey, but it's got some really nice, warm, citrusy, zesty notes to it that I'm really interested in. And and there are a few caramely, vanilla-y notes as well to match that. And I really like all of it. Brad, I really, really love the nose on this. And, you know, it's obvious that when we nose a bourbon, we're likely to say that it smells like vanilla. That's just something that typically comes out on the nose of bourbon. This one has a, a like a vanilla bomb on the nose for me, almost like a vanilla candle or a vanilla ice cream. It doesn't smell so much like straight vanilla extract, uh, but it has a creaminess to it. And then it has a ton of baking spices for me. Like it's just really, really nutmeg forward. It just reminds me of like something that would go really, really well with an apple pie. I'm not getting quite as much citrus as you are. For me, it, it really leans more into those darker baking spice kind of molassesy notes. Uh, but I'm really loving this. It has a great oak kind of character to it as well for only being, you know, probably at the lower end, four years old. It smells like a well-aged whiskey. And I really, really like that. I'm going to give this an eight out of ten on the nose, Brad. I'm pretty close to you there. I think it's a seven and a half. It is a solid nose that intrigues me. 
Well, let's give it a sip and see if it continues to intrigue us. Ooh. I like this. Bob, that is unique. Yeah, I like this a lot. Um, it, It's got a little bit of an alcohol tingle right on the front of the palate. When I go to swallow, Brad, and I don't mean to skip all the way to like the finish here, it gets really smoky. You get a lot of barrel char on the back end of this, which I like a lot, but it never really goes all the way bitter. You definitely can tell there's oak there. There's a lot of smoke going on as well, but it's a really pleasant kind of maple-y and then like a lot of uh, nutmeg clove as well. When I breathe in a little bit, I almost got a, um, like a uh, a hint of like an eggnog kind of thing where you get the creaminess, but you also get those baking spices as well. I really like this. It stays sweet and then really smoky at the end. I was going to say it, it kind of reminds me of like a cream soda with a little bit of like, I almost want to call it a little bit of rye. Like there's a little bit of spiciness in there that invigorates your palate and kind of wakes you up from the sweetness that you're experiencing. Bob, this is this is really good. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the flavor. You know, the funny thing, Brad, is that this actually reminds me a lot of Woodford Double Oaked, like on the palate. And it's, you know, it's made by Brown Foreman, but it's not made in the same place. It's not made with the same mash bill. But if I had to pick like a cousin to this that it would remind me of, it really does kind of have some of those Double Oak characteristics to me. I think it is slightly less in quality than that, though. So I'm just going to give it a seven and a half on the taste, but I really like it. Yeah, it's it's impressing me so far. And when I get to the finish, Bob, you've said this before. A lot of times bottled in bond or proofs that are around that 100 proof can be weirdly overpowering. Like for some reason, you get so much more flavor on 120 something barrel proof that there's something about the 100 proof range. That is, it feels like it's more alcohol forward. With this one, I get that a little bit on the nose and on the palate. But honestly, as I finish, this is one of the most pleasant Kentucky hugs I've gotten from a whiskey in quite some time. Yeah, And I I think that the, the finish hits you with a little bit of that vanilla, a little bit of that charred, oaky, smoky feel. And on top of that, it's a great Kentucky hug. So, so far, I'm... I'm just loving this whiskey, Bob. Yeah, Brad, I think that like on my second, third, fourth sips, uh, when you swallow the flavor that's left on your tongue does kind of, I'm going to say it sours, but it goes bitter a little bit. It it definitely gets a little bit more uh, herbal for me, Um, but that doesn't really take away from it. Like you're right. It has a really pleasant warming sensation on the way down, and I have really nothing negative to say about it so far. I think the finish is probably my least favorite element of this so far, but I'm still going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. I'm going to give it an eight out of 10 on the finish. All right, Brad. And then on balance, I think this is a pretty well-balanced whiskey. I do think the nose hinted that it was going to be sweeter than it ended up being, but it still was so solid at every point of the nose, palate, and finish that I would still call it a pretty well-balanced whiskey, even if I think the nose did deceive me a little bit. I'm going to stick at a seven and a half. This is just a well above average bourbon at every stop. And it's, you know, I I think we overuse the word solid sometimes. It's it's like old reliable. There's nothing about this that is surprising me in a negative way. And I really like that. I I know what I'm getting when I reach for this one. Bob, I, I'm once again, I'm right there with you. This is a, a really great whiskey that is well balanced. The nose gives you the hints of what you're going to get on the palate and the finish. And then it delivers. Uh, for me, it's an 8 out of 10 on the on the balance. All right. And that takes us to overall value. 
Now, this is where, you know, if we like this, Brad, and if we give it a good score on the value, I already want to encourage people to go out and pick up a bottle of it. I know what score I'm going to give it. I've been drinking this for a few months now, waiting for this podcast episode to come around. So, Brad, I guess I can finally reveal to you that I think this is one of the best values out there. It is a liter size, so not a fifth. And it only costs $25. Like that is the standard price on, in the state of Ohio and elsewhere that you can pick this up. $25 for a liter, which equates to roughly 18 and some change for a fifth. So, you know, if, if we were doing this on the on the basis of a fifth, we're talking an $18 bottle of whiskey. This is a phenomenal value, Brad. I cannot think of many others even close to this price range that have as much character as this one does. I'm going to give this a nine out of 10 on the value. I, Bob, if you're asking me for a whiskey that is priced lower than I think the quality is, and you're getting me an extra 250 mLs in there, I, I don't know how this isn't a 10 out mm, of 10. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's a spectacular whiskey. The taste, like you said, it's complex. It's palatable. It is just refreshing. I I just think this is a phenomenal value. Yeah. Like, like you said at the start, hopefully Sazerac keeps the quality up and c- you know continues with the same mash bill and everything because it's a phenomenal whiskey and I would shell out $25 for this bad boy any day of the week. Absolutely. Absolutely, Brad. So let's say this before we even get to our final scores here. You need to run out and get a bottle of this if you can find it at a liquor store. I know it's starting to sell out in a lot of places. If you can find it, pick it up before anything changes with it because they really did kind of strike gold here with this bottle. Now, I will say, I'm speaking for both Brad and I, is this the best whiskey we've had all season? No. I mean, like, we've had tastier whiskeys. We've had more complex, better aged. But at this price point, it's going to be one of our highest rated whiskeys of the year. And it absolutely deserves to be when you factor in that value component. So, Brad, I'm coming out to a 39.5 out of 50. What are you coming out to? I am at a 42 out of 50. All right. So that is taking us to an 81.5 out of 100 or a 40.75. It's pretty rare that a whiskey hits a 40 out of 50 on our podcast. And I know that, you know, we said it's only an 81 out of 100. And so if you're thinking like the U.S. school system, you're thinking that's like in the B to C range. That's not true at all here, guys. Like this is one of the highest rated ones we've had this season on the show, and it deserves the score that it got. Yeah, in in the end, this is a great whiskey that, Bob, you, you would recommend, correct? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Not just to drink, yeah. but to go out and find a bottle as quickly as you can. Yeah, and, and also, like, this is a great whiskey. The, the quality is off the charts for the price you're paying that, you know what? I'm getting a liter of it. I don't mind using it in a mixed drink. I, I don't have to drink it neat the entire time. I'll bet you that this would make some phenomenal whiskey sours. I think it would. And yet I like it too much to do that, Brad. Like I want to keep this and sip it neat. Uh, you know, obviously, like Brad said, if you want to use it in a mixer, you definitely can. And it will probably improve the quality of your cocktails. And that's the mark of a great value whiskey. You can drink it neat. You don't have to do anything to it to make it taste better. And if you use it in your cocktails, it boosts their quality as well. So right. that's our final score here on Early Times Bottled and Bond. Brad, any final comments? Go out and buy a bottle. <laughs> do it. All right. What do you say we get back into talking about Return of the Jedi? Let's get to it.
All right, so that was Early Times Bottled and Bond, a whiskey that we wholeheartedly recommend. And now we're getting back into talking about Return of the Jedi, a movie that Brad and I both like, but that we definitely have our struggles with. And Brad, we left off by talking about how our biggest struggle with the movie is that first hour and a half. I really don't think this movie needs to be two hours and 15 minutes long in the first place, Brad. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, this is the longest of the three films, correct? I'm pretty positive that it is, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. And and like we said, the first two thirds of it are really, really poorly paced. And I think that's kind of putting it mildly. Yeah. The the opening, you know, two thirds ish of the movie like you said, Bob, the, the pacing is a little bit difficult. You can tell that Marquand isn't giving the actors great direction. Um, I, I think all of the actors have individual moments throughout the movie where they really, really shine. Mm-hmm. And, and not just in the last 40 minutes. But overall, the the first half of this movie just... Bob, I was just so disappointed by it this time through. And it, it's partially because I was looking for this to be a phenomenal movie. And that first part of it just isn't. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting here acting like the Star Wars movies are perfect movies. Like, I'm not going to say that Empire Strikes Back is the greatest movie ever made and that Return of the Jedi is the second best movie ever made. Like, that, that's not where I'm at as a Star Wars right, fan. Right, right. Well, and Brad, I think that it also helps that the last 45 minutes of this movie are near perfect in their tone. And I we, we hinted at this earlier But it's just a perfect example of action filmmaking. And they so thoroughly set up each of these three storylines that whenever they cut away to one of those three storylines that's happening, whether it's Luke on the ship with the Emperor and Vader, whether it's Han and Leia uh, down on Endor, whether it's Lando leading the assault on the Death Star, they all have pretty equal weight, you know, n- not just in terms of the emotion behind them, but in terms of the stakes that you can you can tell are at play here. And it really reminded me of how we talked about Christopher Nolan's movies and how he really loves to do that sort of I don't know what you would call it, but it's like a like a rule of three. He always likes to intercut between three different storylines in the climax of his movies, and he does it so well that it's worth mentioning and this movie, I think, really kind of sets the template for that to end a film. The, the end of this movie might be like top three or four movie moments. It's not really a moment, but you know what I mean? Of all time. Mm-hmm. The ending of this movie from the point where Luke walks into the chamber with the Emperor. But uh, I don't even know if it's there. It's the moment when Lando is in the Falcon. And he realizes that the shield is still on. He calls off the attack. Yep. You see all the ships peel off. Akbar gives his famous line. Yep. And then the music starts bumping. The TIE fighters fly in and they're in that perfect formation that veers off. And from that point on, I don't know if I've seen many better movies than what you see for that final 40 minutes. And Brad, I, I really like to pride myself on understanding, you know, film history and also like where does that where does that familiar thing find its origin? And I can't think back any farther than Return of the Jedi when I think about this way of ending a film, an action film with that sort of three story arc climax that's being intercut. And I'm sure maybe somebody did it before this, Brad, but it really did feel like the first kind of modern film that laid that template down that so many movies follow. I mean, I'm even thinking of my favorite Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, really kind of copies this same template, whether it's, you know, 
what's going on at Helm's Deep, what's going on with Frodo and Sam, or what's going on with Merry and Pippin, they're always cutting in between those storylines. And this one, I think, even more than Empire, I felt the stakes a lot more because Empire was like plot, 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 and you're done. And it told it had to cram so much in and it did. Whereas this one's like, you know, right at the beginning of the movie, like this is what we have to do. They do a few things to set it up and they're like, all right, now's the time. Let's go attack. And you know that this movie is just building towards a huge climactic battle. And I love it when a movie kind of has the guts to say, we don't need any more plot than is necessary because the climactic battle of this film is what everything has been building towards. And this one does it so perfectly. And Bob, what I really love is that I, there's a difference in my mind, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. You're, you're the cinephile. In my mind, there is a difference between story and plot. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Like, and the driving thing about this final 40 minutes is the story, the essence, the heart of Star Wars, that it isn't just about fancy ships and all, all these aliens and, and their interactions and all these things. It's a story about humans searching for meaning, about Luke trying to find his place in a vast universe that could give a rip about mm. him. And that this final 40 minutes is just utterly beautiful when you consider all of the relationships that are happening in this movie. And you get to the final fight between Darth Vader and Luke. And I just, I literally well up with tears in the final part of their combat, partially because of the fact that Luke is, is has given into his hatred and he's ready to kill Vader, but also because of the fact that John Williams is the greatest composer ever and realize that this is not the moment to go to some like loud, climactic, yeah. just massive opera piece. And instead, he plays this just kind of sad, mournful, almost weeping bit of music as Luke finally, you know, puts the finishing move on Vader and is about to kill him. Yeah. It's just so impactful. Well, and that's. I, I, I don't know, Bob. This is something that I texted you as I was watching the movie the other night. I said, like, the thing that did it for me, and I used the word mournful too, like, it's the best word for it. William's score and and Brad, you know, neither one of us was even alive when this movie came out. So I don't know if this is one of those instances where they kind of patched over something, if, if the score was different when it came out. But if so, if this is a change, it's a change for the better because the score is perfect. John Williams could have easily gone into something like Duel of the Fates from episode one and made it like this big epic action fight scene. And he goes the complete opposite route where the sort of tragic elements are brought to the forefront where you realize you're not just watching two people fighting or good versus evil. You're watching a family tragedy play out in front of your eyes. And the emotion of that moment is overwhelming. And I think it's a beautiful, beautiful decision by the director and by John Williams uh, to not lean into the more kind of like bombastic side of the score and to go with the more emotional, you know, arrangement instead. So, Brad, can I just, before we wrap up today, 
you know, this is our last Star Wars movie for I don't know how long. Maybe we'll get to the prequels at some point. Um, I have a feeling we're never going to do the Disney films on this podcast. <laughs> oh, no. We I'm would, we more would than legitimately happy. fight on those films. But I'm more than happy to trash Disney Star Wars any day of the week. But I took a bunch of notes that were just like little things I loved. And I didn't I knew they wouldn't be points of discussion. And I kind of just want to go back and forth, Brad, with like little things about this movie that just make you love Star Wars. And the first thing for me was just the forest moon of Endor is a perfect setting. And those those speeders that they get on are a fantastic touch. Like before, even before the Ewoks show up, when they first get onto Endor, I'm like, yep, this is exactly the setting that I needed to see in the Star Wars universe. It's just such a cool place to stage, you know, a battle. Well, because you've gotten you've gotten Tatooine, you've gotten Hoth. You've gotten all of these other like uh, like climates, yeah, like biomes, like ecosystems, yeah, uh, yeah, and you needed a forest setting, and and it's just so beautiful, and the trees are so massive that it, it just feels right. I, I'm right there with you, Bob. I love love Endor. You know, I actually really really love Lando in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like when when he's in the Falcon and he is. Um, interacting with his co-pilot yeah i don't know there's just a sheer joy to the way that they interact that it's just perfect yeah and, and the thing for me is even more minute than that it's it's that billy d williams just he has a relentless commitment to pronouncing it han solo and he, he really he does. never stops and like you know especially in a new hope they go back and forth on it like it's very clearly not han for a while but when Billy D shows up in Empire all the way through to the end of the trilogy, he's like, Han, 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 we got to go save Han. <laughs> and I'm just like, like, everyone around him is saying Han at that point. And he's like, absolutely not. I am Billy D. Williams. I will not learn this dialogue correctly. I'm calling him Han forever. <laughs> and I just love it. It, it makes me smile. Well, it, it gives the universe this feeling of like, everybody is their own person. I, I think that's, maybe this is something I'll point out is how big the universe feels. And I will say this is something that Lucas kind of added with the special editions. Probably the only thing I liked was that at the end of the movie, you go to the different planets mm. and you and you see the celebration <laughs> of the fall of <laughs> the Empire. Nope. And I love that because it gives Hard this, pass. It gives this feel of this isn't something that they were just doing for themselves. This is something that the universe was waiting for, was was crying out for. And Bob apparently just doesn't have a soul and appreciate the crushing tyranny of the Empire. So here's the thing. like I, I just hate how bad the CGI is in all of Lucas's updates. And it's not even necessarily that he just pulled the trigger on CGI before CGI got really good. Because I think that a lot of ILM's stuff still looks kind of chintzy. Like when they did Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, like I still don't think it looks great. Leia didn't look great in Rogue One. So it's not just that like Lucas put bad CGI in these, but it's that the CGI looks so much worse than the practical miniatures that they used in 1983 that when any time they go to, you know, what I don't know, what's the name of the city? Is it Cor- not Coruscant? Like what's the, the city where the Senate is in the... Yeah, it's Coruscant. Yeah, like anytime they show like Coruscant or like it just looks so fake and it looks so jarringly different that I just I hate the way they end this movie. I hate and like it was never a great ending to begin with. 
because they all just kind of stood around and sang Yub Nub or whatever it was called. But like <laughs> they I feel like they actively made it worse by trying to do the ending of Independence Day where they like they show all the people across the earth, like the little Ethiopian kids with their Morse code and all the alien ships are blowing up and making fireworks like Independence Day's ending kicked ass. And then George Lucas was like, I'm going to do that with Return of the Jedi. And he made it a million times worse. I just like I can't get over how bad the ending is, Brad. I guess for me, it's once again, it's less about the CGI there because I agree with you. It's not great. Yeah. But it's more about the story of Star Wars. And it, and it shows that the actions of a, f- of a few small people can change the course of the universe. I'm down with that. So for me, it's more about the story than it is about the terrible 1998-99 CGI. So I have one legitimate question for you before we wrap this up, Brad. And, and like you're not allowed to bring in extended universe stuff. Like, only using the logic that the movie has established. Okay. I have never understood why the Emperor says, if you strike me down, your journey to the dark side will be complete. Because the the implication is that, like, for a Jedi to murder somebody or to kill out, like, out of spite, out of hatred, will turn that person to the dark side. But, like... You know, if we could make like a real world analogy here, it's it's kind of like that old ethical question of like, if you could kill Hitler, would you do it? You know, I, I don't understand why killing someone who is so evil and having a like a healthy amount of hatred towards his evilness would turn you to the dark side. Like because we see Luke kill people in Jabba's lair, like he kills a bunch of people and he doesn't that that's not that doesn't turn him to the dark side. So why would killing the most evil thing in the universe make him evil. I think it's more of the fact that there is so much personal hatred there that that is what the dark side is all about. It's about building this personal hatred that you draw upon to interact with the world around you. And so it's, I guess it to put it, sum it up simply, your motivation is more important than your actions. Hmm. I get that. I I still don't feel like they did a great job setting that up, you know? Yeah, I I, I will say I am not espousing that as a moral philosophy for the world. I love Star Wars with every inch of my soul, but I would not want my children to learn ethics from the Star Wars universe. (laughs) They're, They're not good in any way. All right. Well, with that, Brad, let's put a bow on this thing. We're we're already approaching an hour here, so... Uh, what's your final score on Return of the Jedi? We both know it's flawed. Where are you coming out on this one? Bob, I, man, I still like elements of the first hour and a half of this movie. There's, there's parts of it that I really enjoy from Jabba's palace, from Yoda on Dagobah, from their conversation about the Death Star with Mon Mothma. There's a lot of things that I like throughout that. It's just the overall pacing and structure that I feel like really struggles And then the last 40 minutes of this movie are just spot on pitch perfect for me. They hit every note that I want to see out of a Star Wars movie. I think for me, you said it best, Bob. This movie has the highest highs and the lowest lows of the original trilogy. I just still love this movie. I'm not going to give it a 10 out of 10. I think I'm still going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. I'm kind of wavering between a 9 and a a 9.5. I used to consistently say that my favorite was Empire, second favorite was Return, third favorite was A New Hope. 
I'm probably at the point where A New Hope and this are equal for me. If not, A New Hope's a little higher. But but we'll just we'll just call it nine and a half. I love this movie. I, I think that the ending just knocks my socks off every time. I literally started crying because we you know we just had our kid and I was watching it and she was in my arms and I was just like, I'm watching a Star Wars movie with my kid for the first time. <laughs> and she's like eight days old and sitting in my arms like, what are you crying about, dad? You're ridiculous. But it's all good, man. I just love this movie. It, it's a nine and a half for me. Bob, I, I'm, I might just shut off my headphones while you give your final score because well, I, I feel like I'm going to be very disappointed the way I, in you as a human being. The way I feel towards you right now is like the same way I feel towards this movie because I am emotionally moved by what you just said. Like the fact that you have a movie that means this much to you that like you're watching it with your daughter now and you're like you're crying because you get to share this with her. Like that's what movies are all about. At the same time, I hate you because now you're going to make me come in after your appeal to emotion to our whole audience. You're going to make me come in and try to refute that. Like, it's already a losing battle for me. I'm, you, I'm not making you, you do that, Bob. I'm just saying, you like, are choosing, you positioned yourself to, do that. to be, like, the, the, the man of the people. And then I come in, you know, like the tax collector that I am, and everyone hates me. I'll, Brad, I'll say this about this movie. Like, I... I it's the highest highs. It's the lowest lows of the whole trilogy. I honestly think I still like this better than A New Hope because I gave A New Hope a seven out of ten. I just think a lot of that movie it, it was so you know low budget. I, I think you can kind of see it in a lot of places in that film. This one is definitely more sharp looking. Like it, it was made with a, a higher amount of efficiency and effectiveness, but it still has probably the longest, most boring stretch of the whole trilogy. All that said, I probably still like it better than A New Hope. I gave that a seven. Brad, I think I'm going to give this one a seven and a half out of ten. I could see myself giving it an eight, but this time around, like before I went into it, I was like, I'm going to give this an eight or an eight and a half. That first hour and a half really, really took this movie down for me. And especially since we can't see the original version before Lucas went in and tinkered with it. And I think most of the changes he made in the first half slowed the movie down even more. I think that. I'm going to come out to a seven and a half, which brings our average to an 8.5 out of 10 on this film. Brad, I would hope that you would think that that's a pretty fair score for this movie. I, man, I just don't. I Like seven and a half just feels so low. I, I really do think like an eight or an eight and a half is about the lowest I could go for this movie. When you look at what it means, I don't know. I, I just I think I it's just, just think really personal movie. for you, man. Like, I, I just don't know. Like, and I don't mean anything bad by this because I have movies like this, too, for myself. I just don't know if I asked you to be like as objective as possible about this movie. I don't know if you could do it. And that's not to say that that's a bad thing. I, I just don't think this movie is anywhere close to a nine and a half. And what I'm saying is like, you know, the IMDb on this movie is, I think, like an eight point three. And we're coming out to an average of an eight point five, Brad. So, like, I think we're right in line where with most people would kind of rank this movie. In the end, though, the important thing is not what Bob and I have to say about this movie. It's what I have to say about this movie. I was going to say. So (laughs) it's a nine and a half out of ten. Film Whiskey Nation, you can agree with me or be wrong. And let us know on our social medias. Bob, where can they find us at? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Let your voice be heard. You can leave us a voicemail on our website, which is anchor.fm slash film whiskey. 
Next week, we're going to be back with a movie that features one of the most electric debut performances in screen history, 1955's East of Eden. So join us for that next week for the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Film and Whiskey is produced, engineered, and edited by Bob Book and Brad G. And it's made possible from support from listeners like you. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate directly to us at our Anchor page, anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey, where you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. Or if you'd like some perks, donate to our Patreon page. You can find us on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey, where for as little as $3 a month, you'll receive benefits like membership to an exclusive Discord chat room, extended cuts of each episode, and early access to every film and whiskey episode. We want to say thank you again to our Patreon supporters, especially those sponsoring us at our highest viscosity level, and that includes our friends Corey Easterday, James Talbert, Austin Dupree, and Aperture Flash. We'll see you next week.